Hey, this is episode 125 of the Crowdfunding Uncut podcast. Today we are going back to our top 10. This is an episode with Matt Bodner where we are going to go through an investment cheat sheet. Um, this is super relevant because a lot of campaigns, if you're looking at doing over, say, a $50,000 mark, you might want to consider getting an angel investor slash VC, and you might be confused as to what is the right time to bring someone on and how to go about that process. So um, really stoked to dive into this one. And again, May 15th, we are dropping the new brand and a whole new podcast. So to keep up to date with that and what we're doing and to be notified when the new podcast drops, go to kirsten.com. It's K-H-I-E-R-S-T-Y-N.com. Let's head over to the episode. This is Crowdfunding Uncut, the place where creators and entrepreneurs come to learn how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Here's your host, Kirsten Ross. I want to take a second to thank Gadgetflow for sponsoring this episode. Guys, if you are looking for an awesome platform to get your crowdfunding project in front of over 25 million people per month, you should absolutely check them out. They are the third largest Indiegogo partner and listed on Kickstarter as experts. And not to mention, they've worked with over 4,000 crowdfunding projects since 2012. Their platform also now supports AR and VR, which I thought was a really cool add-on. To find out more, you should definitely head over to thegadgetflow.com slash submit to list your crowdfunding project today. But be sure to use coupon code UNCUT10 to get 10% off your services with them. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode. This is Crowdfunding Uncut and I'm Kirsten, as you guys should obviously know by now. Um, I have... A guest on the podcast that we met. Oh God, where did we meet again? We took you off, or no, no, two no. twelve. Yes, we met at two twelve. Um, we have a mutual friend, Soul Orwell, who I'm going to get on this podcast. Oops, Soul, too bad. It's too late. Anyways, um, but we met at an event called Two Twelve, put on by Adam Bornstein. That um, is like a really high level mastermind, and they had like Tim Ferriss and Noah Kagan headlining there, as well as some other awesome people. And Matt and I clicked uh, just being fellow podcasters, and we eventually met up again in Toronto and just kind of riffing off, um, like learning a bit more about what he's doing. Uh, he is the host of the Science of Success podcast, but also he is a partner at a VC firm called Fresh Hospitality that dabbles a lot in the food industry. I'll let him get into it more because I feel like I may be butchering the pitch a little bit. But um, we sat down for coffee a few months ago here in Toronto. He was just telling me a bit of the work that they do at Fresh Hospitality. And I thought that a really relevant angle for you guys would be to getting into the conversation of how do you start to look for investment? What what does it look like dealing with VCs, especially in the um, in the food industry? I feel that there are going to be a, a lot of relevant takeaways to, even if you're not in the food services industry, um, VC funding and even going for investment post-crowdfunding is a big go-to-market strategy, especially if you're in the hardware space. And so what does that look like? Um, that's why I wanted to bring Matt on the podcast. So we have Matt Bodner from Science of Success, and I'm just stoked to have you. Well, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you uh, very much for having me. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe to start out, I'll, I'll, you did a great job explaining kind of what I do. I'll fill in a few kind of gaps and, and explain that piece, and then we can dig deeper. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to. Let's do that. Some of the specifics. 
Um, so as you mentioned, you know, I have, I'm sort of the host of a podcast, which we get into maybe later, but uh, I'm also a partner at an early stage investment firm called Fresh Hospitality, which invests kind of across the food value spectrum. So we invest in things, uh, everything from sort of farming and agriculture. Um, and we've invested in some really cool stuff like vertical farming, urban farming, startups, those kind of things uh, through sort of packaged food. So we, we have a business where we make like hams, bacons, and sausages, uh, barbecue sauce, those kind of things. Um, and then really the two largest components of our portfolio are restaurant operations and commercial real estate development. Um, and then we have a number of kind of uh, sort of related portfolio investments in things like technology, marketing, accounting, all these kind of pieces of the puzzle that fit sort of around the ecosystem so that we invest in a company um, we're able to add immediate value by plugging them into our accounting team, our marketing team, all these kind of components that help them get access to uh, bigger resources than they'd be able to access kind of on their own. And so that's sort of in a nutshell what we do. Uh, and I can go deeper into any sort of pieces or parts of that portfolio, kind of depending on uh, where you want to dig in. Yeah. So you guys, because you, and when you do bring on a new startup, do you act like an incubator almost, or you just say, because we're investing in you, we're going to help you massively scale based on the partnerships that we have? I think an incubator is a good way to think about it. I mean, we're not completely sort of structured like an incubator, but that's a very good analogy. Um, I mean, we provide, we're very hands-on investors. And so I, you know, I think about investing kind of as a spectrum from uh, what I would call sort of the discovery of value on one end and, the, and then the creation of value on the other end. And so if you think about someone like a stock picker, um, most of their value creation from, the, from what they do in investing is all about discovering value, right? They're kind of combing through financial statements uh, and, and profit and loss statements, and they're trying to determine the value of sort of the hidden value of a company. We really, I mean, obviously financials are an important part of what we do, but we're not on that side of the spectrum. We're on the total other side, which is basically um, creating value. And so when we invest in a company, the company definitely has value and we have a lot of selection criteria and things that we look for in companies that we invest in. Um, but ultimately the way we're going to try to realize value for that investment is by adding the value ourselves, whether it's kind of working with the company, serving the board of the company, helping them source kind of executive management talent, um, you know, uh, plugging them into the infrastructure that we have, helping them implement the right systems and processes to be able to scale. And so all those pieces of the puzzle are, are very much kind of things that we get very hands-on and in, in delivering uh, when we invest in a business. I love that. Is that the usual, like to say you were a startup looking for VC investment, is that the usual uh, arrangement that you have with the VC or what are the different kinds of ways that people can work with VCs? I mean, there's a lot of different ways people can do it. We are, uh, you know, a little bit more hands-on than kind of a traditional VC would be. Um, and because of that, we also typically take a larger major, like a larger, typically in many cases, majority equity stake in the companies we invest in. So, uh, you know, and I kind of tell people that we invest at the stage of a venture capital company, but we actually operate a little bit more like a traditional sort of private equity firm in the sense that we're, we're typically taking a big uh, stake in the company and we're typically very hands-on. Whereas a lot of times uh, VCs will take, you know, a minority position. And again, it depends on a lot of things, valuation terms and all this stuff. But um, they'll typically take maybe let's say 20 to 40% of the company, something like that. We're looking to take maybe 50 at a minimum, maybe 60, 70% of the company would we invest. That, yeah, that completely makes sense because you're bringing them the infrastructure 
So ultimately, they're either going to be carrying costs of salary or you go to a firm like yours that does this every single day and you have the manpower and you just kind of help supplement their team, which completely makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So before I get into, I have a thousand questions, but how did you get into the food part of like, because fresh hospitality is, is centered around farming and food and anything under that spectrum, like why are you passionate about it? And how did you specifically get in, like, involved with Fresh? So I'm out of undergrad. I, I worked on Wall Street for a number of years up in New York. Uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee now. And I'm, I'm from Nashville originally. And I had an opportunity uh, through some family connections, basically, to come back to Nashville, get involved kind of in the food world and in Fresh specifically. And so um, I didn't necessarily initially kind of set out and say food is where I want to plant my flag. But I kind of ended up in that uh, vertical And, you know, it's got a lot of advantages and and sort of interesting dynamics that I think have been beneficial for us, uh, especially given that food has been specifically kind of in the retail sort of brick and mortar world, food has been one of the least disrupted businesses by technology so far. And so there's some interesting opportunities, uh, both on the sort of food tech side to to get involved in that way and start disrupting it, but also uh, investing in more of the traditional kind of brick and mortar pieces of the business um, it's, it's an industry by and large that has been, is isn't, there's not as much kind of investment activity. So it's easier to source opportunities, less competitive. And, uh, and it's been a great kind of playground for us so far. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I do get pitched a lot of like, so to bring this relevant to crowdfunding, um, I do get pitched a lot of projects that are in the physical product food space. So you mentioned before, like barbecue sauces and physical product and food. Have you guys ever invested in, a company that was started by crowdfunding? We haven't yet, but I mean, I think crowdfunding is, especially if you're doing like a CPG product or like a, some kind of food product, I think crowdfunding is absolutely the, the right or one of the top sort of launch platforms or validation methodologies, right? Because it's simultaneously, I and mean, you talk about this in, you know, all the time, but uh, simultaneously sort of proves customer demand and gives you a little bit of startup capital to kind of get things rolling. So, you know, if I'm looking, if I'm comparing two products and one of them is kind of somebody who's spent their own money to develop a product that very few customers have ever seen. And the other person, you know, is, let's say is sort of a similar product, but they did a crowdfunded campaign and it was really successful. I'm definitely going to defer or be more interested in the crowdfunded company, um, mostly because it's got a ton of validation, right? And they've got a ton, they've got customers, emails and people they can reach out to. And so to me, that form of validation that you get from doing something like crowdfunding is tremendously valuable. Yeah. And typically when you have a CPG company as a physical product company that has come to you to say, Hey, would you take us on as a client? What are some things that, so two questions. The first one is what are some, actually, no, I'm going to start with one. What has to happen in their portfolio for you to be interested as an investor? So what are some of the check marks that you look for in a food package company? So I would say, I mean, again, this this circles back a little bit to our investment philosophy, but currently I'd say the biggest thing we would look for um, is that it synergizes in some way with an existing investment we have. So a lot of the kind of current food sort of CPG products we have are directly related to the businesses we're in. So we have a chain of barbecue restaurants. Uh, and so as part of kind of a spinoff of that, we have 
um, you know, you know have a line of hams and bacons and sausages and barbecue sauces and all of these things that we've kind of, not only can we use our, our physical restaurants as a distribution point for those, but we can also, in some cases, piggyback off the brand uh, and sort of the brand recognition identity of our restaurant concepts to leverage that and sell uh, the various sort of CPG products. Um, that said, I mean, that's not necessarily a requirement. That's, that's, you know, a key piece for us, but I think going more broadly and even looking outside of CPG, one of the most important things, uh, I say the two most important things other than sort of portfolio synergy, which may be highly specific to us would be one, having some kind of traction and validation, which we talked a little bit about and, and crowdfunding is a great vehicle to do that. And I think the other would be the, the entrepreneur themselves is, is really, really important. And so we're looking for somebody who's, you know, we want the founder to stay involved in the business. We don't invest in a company to kind of kick them out of the way and, and drive the boat ourselves. We want them to be a piece of it and want them to continue to lead, especially sort of the creative side of the business. So we want them to be really spearheading the design, the, you know, in the food instance, in many cases, sort of like the menu or the flavor profile component, um, the customer experience. And we like to focus on kind of the nuts and bolts backend stuff around kind of scaling up and dealing with technology, dealing with accounting, finance, all those kind of pieces of the puzzle. And so for us, uh, an entrepreneur that's really engaged, someone of integrity, and we do a lot of work on kind of background, not, you know, well, yes, background checks, but also like reference checks, people who they've done business with in the past, trying to really get a sense of the entrepreneur and who they are. And that's a, a really, really important point for us. Nope. That makes sense. It's funny because I choose my clients the same way. I mean, I get asked, how do you pick projects? And it's ultimately, it comes down to the entrepreneur because you, if you have a, a product that has some potential, because like I do early stage pre-revenue. So if I have something that I think has the potential for a good idea, if they could take the feedback and take after some initial validation or market testing, if we need to shift the product, they take that feedback, Yeah, you know, and that's yeah, just that's well, one component, but I mean, one I think- component, yeah. I mean, I think just that particular point you just brought up, kind of the ability to take feedback, that's a huge, huge thing for us. And I mean, you know, we also look for founders that are aligned on what I'll call mindset, which is basically components like that. And, and that's one of the reasons, it's actually sort of why the, my, I started my podcast um, was I, it started out as basically a PowerPoint deck. And every time we'd bring on a new business partner or fund a company, I would meet with the entrepreneurs and the kind of the management team and walk them through this thing which I called mindset at the time, which is basically like how to deal with negative emotions, how to deal with setbacks, how to deal with, um, you know, take feedback effectively, like all these pieces of the puzzle that they don't teach you in, you know, business school or whatever else, but really, really important components of, of being successful. Yeah. It's resilience essentially and how they manage the bumpy road that is entrepreneurship. I mean, we, um, we were talking, I mean, just before this, I'm working with a coach, Jared Tenler, who was on your podcast and he wrote the mental game of poker and no, I don't play poker. So you're probably wondering why I work with this guy. But the reason is that, I mean, you play poker too, but uh, talk about totally hijacking this to another point. The thing is though, that um, poker is a mindset. You have this industry that no matter how good you are, you are going to lose more times than not. And so that's been a great playground for me to be able to take the concept that he talks about in how to maneuver decision-making and mindset and building your resilience to entrepreneurship. And I think that um, 
it's not something you're equipped with, as you say, like, it's just, you learn to navigate the roadblocks and how to deal with your own mental stress and your setbacks based on keep keeping yourself moving forward in this business. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, Jared, I'm a huge fan of Jared. And obviously he's been a guest on the show. He and I hung out uh, at the world series of poker this summer in Vegas. And, you know, I'm a poker player. And to me, like poker is a beautiful game because it teaches it, it, it doesn't care about like how you feel, right? It's the most sort of brutal form of feedback you can possibly get in the sense that like, if your emotions are causing you to make bad decisions, poker is just going to mercilessly punish you over and over and over again. And that's, you know, basically in the poker world, they call that tilt, right? Which is like losing control of your emotional state. And, but there's, there's so many valuable lessons from poker or because it's, it's such a merciless crucible that as it, you know, doesn't, it just doesn't care about how you feel. And so you have to adjust yourself to be able to perform in, in, in that environment in a very sort of uh, kind of tight feedback loop, right? And the, the hard part about business is that the feedback loops are a lot longer and murkier. And it's hard to see sort of the connection between action and result. And a lot of times you can take a bad action and it ends up in a good result. Uh, in poker, that can also happen, but the, the, you know, the feedback is much tighter. And so over, over a shorter time horizon, you get your, your decisions way out a lot more clearly. And I think poker teaches a very valuable lesson that is also super applicable in business, which is this idea that it's not about whether the outcome was the right outcome. It's about whether the decision was the right decision and had sort of in poker parlance, a positive expected value. And so as long as you're, you know, it kind of teaches you that, and this is a huge thing in investing too, and tons of investors write about horse betting and, and sports betting and gambling and poker because they all teach the same kind of idea of positive expected value. But it's basically the notion that in any field where the outcomes, you know, there's some sort of gap between decision and outcome, you want to be making the right decision and whether the outcome is good or not doesn't really matter as much as long as the decision-making process is really solid. And so through poker initially, and then really through a tremendous amount of studying and reading and interviewing experts and stuff on the podcast after that, you know, I've, my, one of my sort of quests in life is to master what I call the art of decision-making, which is basically trying to figure out how can I be a better decision-maker? How can I kind of improve my own ability to think about the world? Because if you get you know, that's something that compounds over time and impacts everything that you do. And so if you get better at making decisions and, and analyzing reality, it doesn't matter if you're buying a house, you know, negotiating the lease for your next apartment, a business arrangement, uh, you know, putting together a Kickstarter campaign, selling somebody something, you know, whatever it is, everywhere across your life that cascades through all the things that you're doing. And so if you can get 1% better at making decisions, uh, it's going to have a tremendous impact on on everything you do. And so to me, that's kind of one of the most uh, high leverage activities to focus on is really mastering the ability to make better decisions and circling all the way back. I think poker is a great tool to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I just, uh, it's funny because just before we started recording, I almost went off on this tangent and us podcasters, like anyone that starts a podcast, you'll know this. We just, we have to intentionally stop conversations, say, let's wait until we record to go off yep. on this little binge, right? Like it's, uh, it's too funny. But speaking of, before I brought it back to the, like the investor side, um, I know you have a freebie on decision-making and stuff, which we'll get to at the end. But like, if you don't play poker, what would you say is your number one um, piece of wisdom for how you can start to improve your decision-making? 
Yeah. So as you, as you touched on, we'll talk about it later, but I do have kind of a free guide for making better decisions that goes through a number of these tools. But I mean, the most obvious to me is reading is, is sort of a prerequisite to making great decisions and reading specifically kind of the right sort of material, which we can get into. Um, but other than that, like a really simple tool that you can use is something called a decision journal, which is basically if you have a major decision coming up and you don't need to do this for like every single decision, like, did I wear a red shirt or a blue shirt today? Like, that doesn't matter, right? Like you, you probably have maybe zero to three major decisions every month in your life. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less, but let's just say one a week, maybe one every two weeks and, and, and maybe, maybe one a month. And and what you want to do is kind of try to flag those really key decision points and do kind of a journal entry where you write down, how are you feeling right now? What's the decision that you're going to make? Why you think it's the right decision and what you think the, the sort of outcome is going to be. And, it, and you, you can get even deep, like more detailed if you kind of wait out the outcomes and say, you know, I think there's a 60% chance that this results in kind of a, uh, you know, like a base hit. I think there's a 10% chance this is a home run. There's a 20% chance that it's kind of a medium failure. And there's like a 10% chance it's a disaster or right. You can, you can kind of weigh these out and think about the different outcomes. And then even write about like, if I'm, if I'm writing about this in a year from now, what are the reasons that this did really well or what are the reasons that it failed and the key is to go back start to build kind of a log of these decisions and then come back over time and see how was your decision making process right because there's with hindsight bias and and all the other cognitive biases that are at play uh, it's super easy to deceive yourself and say like you know, when a project fails, you'd be like, oh, I knew that project was going to fail. Like, you know, I could, I could tell you it was going to fail before we even started it. And then you go back and read your decision journal and it's like, well, you only gave it a 10% chance of failure. And you actually said you thought it was going to be like a really good idea. And here's all the reasons why. And it's like, okay, well, what can you learn from that about your own decision-making process? And so that's a really good tool to kind of crystallize your thoughts on paper so that you can go back and see exactly what you were thinking at the time and and iterate on your decision making process and basically be like okay yeah you know what i didn't evaluate these downside risks quite enough or i didn't really see that this was going to lead to this other opportunity that ended up making this thing that i thought was kind of a waste of time into like a huge opportunity right and so you can start to see uh, where you're falling short and, and that gives you the ability to improve your decision-making process. You know, as we talked about a second ago, like feedback is how you learn and how you get better. And so the only way to get feedback on your decision-making process is by actually recording the key decisions that you're making and recording even, you know, the emotional state that you're in when you're making those decisions to see like, oh, if I was really frustrated that week, like maybe that led to some bad decisions. Or if I was really, you know, excited, maybe I overanalyzed how well something was going to turn out or whatever. But all of these pieces of the puzzle kind of fit in. And I think decision journals are a great tool for really getting a crystal clear kind of look at how well you're making decisions now so that you can improve kind of the blind spots in, your, in the way that you think about decision making. I love that. And I think too, um, if, if I just add into that, I do that. I don't have a, like my journal is just more one large notebook that everything goes in. And when I'm wrestling with the decision, um, I tend to write it down. But I'm more, what you've described is like the nice analytical approach and what, maybe if someone feels that there's a lot of emotions um, impacting the decision, what I like to do on top of, um, I liked a lot of the suggestions for like where you led the conversation, 
but maybe adding in why you feel this way. Because what if some decisions are like, um, should I fire someone? And it's, you might find that once you dig deeper that you're actually super insecure about firing this person because it might mean something else about you. Like maybe you don't know if you can handle the workload. And, but if you look on paper that you absolutely should make this decision to fire this person, maybe what is stopping you from making that decision and working through that. I found that to be really powerful too, to help take the emotion out of the decision-making. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and, you know, another piece of that too is you can revisit these decisions multiple times, right? Like you can revisit it three months later and see how it panned out. You can revisit it like a year later and see maybe something else panned out. And so I think being aware of the emotional component is huge and figuring out what kind of emotional issues might be underlying either a lack of action or whatever else. Uh, And also looking at that broader time horizon and thinking about, okay, like as this decision plays out through time, what could I have learned or what, you know, what mistakes did I make, whether they were emotional or logical or whatever else that I can integrate into making better decisions in the future. Yeah. Oh man. I really love that. Is um one thing I've I've learned working with Jared is like he's given me a system very much like what you just described of if you are struggling with this or if you feel this, here's what you should do. And it's like a step-by-step um health process. So I really like your approach there. Um so going back to <laughs> back to the VC stuff, um, <laughs> what are some when someone pitches you their idea, so first off, how um, of your portfolio, what percentage would you say are ones that you guys sought after yourself? So like you cold call these businesses to come on board versus people that pitch you? So I would say probably less than 10% of our portfolio is stuff that we've actively sought out. Okay. The vast majority of it is from inbound lead flow of people coming to us. And when we were first kind of starting out, it was more about us actively seeking out and looking for people. But now... I get pitched like five or six, you know, deals a week of just like random stuff like coming to me that uh, we say the, say no to the vast majority of, of these transactions, right? And so for us, um, we've been able to cultivate kind of the PR and the, you know, the, the word of mouth and referrals and all this kind of stuff to have a large chunk of kind of inbound deal flow. And I would say for somebody who's looking to, like if you wanted to get on my deal radar or whatever, like... The, there's kind of a hierarchy, and I think this stands for most venture capitalists, that any any cold, fully cold, like inbound stuff that comes in, you almost just discard it off the bat, right? Like someone puts like a submits a thing on the on a form on our website, like I'm almost always just not going to read that or like just discard it, like because there's too many of them. But if somebody like if you get a warm intro from someone I know, then there's like a much higher probability that I'll take that meeting because at least it's been sort of vetted out one level. And so I'd say if you're flipping this around, if you're one of the listeners and you're thinking about how do I get intro to an investor in this space that potentially could help me out, find someone, you know, whether it's through LinkedIn or whatever else who knows them and try to get a warm intro because that's going to go a lot longer than, um, you know, just like sending a cold submission on their website, which I'd say the vast majority of those just basically go into the trash can. Yeah. And so what does it look like? Because I've never pitched for VC investment um, yet. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just say I get, I'm a startup and I get an intro to you. What is the next step? Like, do you, 
what is what does that process look like? Do you do get them to send you like a paragraph by email and then do an investor meeting or like what is Yeah, I mean there's no there's no hard and fast process for it. I mean there's there's kind of some loose steps that follow roughly. I would say Depending on, I mean, you know, start out, let's say you were introduced and I actually want to talk to you. If you're, lo- you know, if you're somewhat local or kind of within the region, like I would say, let's try to meet in person sometime soon, right? And in, in many cases, if it's a restaurant or something like that, or, or uh, you know, maybe even a food company that has like a facility or some products or whatever, like I would say, I want to meet him in person. Or if not, I want him to send me something, you know, like send me your food, send me your barbecue sauce or whatever, um, and then let's talk on the phone for like 30 minutes and kind of just feel each other out. And so I think that's kind of the next, you know, the initial step is just sort of feel each other out, have a call where you talk about, Hey, here's, here's what we do. Here's blah, blah, blah. Like, what are you looking for? You know, because a lot of times when someone's like, Oh, I want an investment or whatever you say, well, okay, look, we're only going to take a majority stake. Like, here's the things we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. It's like some people that's just not a fit. And that's totally fine. Like our, our sort of sales sales process to close investments uh, is is not about like hard selling somebody. It's much more about sort of disqualifying people, or as Perry Marshall would sort say, sort of racking the shotgun to you know get everybody who's not the right person out of the way as quickly as possible. And so, after an initial sort of meet and greet, phone call, or meeting to kind of suss out whether it's worth to pers- pursuing, then I'd say probably we'd sign some kind of NDA, non disclosure agreement type of thing. Uh, then start looking at the numbers, look at the financials get a sense of, uh, you know, maybe through another conversation or two, like what are they looking for uh, broadly from sort of what do they want to grow? What's their vision for the business? How much of the business are they willing to give up for investment? All these pieces of the puzzle, combine that with the numbers. And the next piece would be sort of a term sheet to where we would basically say, let's say like a three to five page document that just says, here's what we're going to bring to the table. Here's what you're going to bring to the table. Here's what the future structure of our, you know, deal together is going to look like. Um, And then, you know, I would send that to them and we basically sit down, talk through the term sheet, agree, disagree, kind of sort some things out and then sign a, sign a, sign documents essentially after that and then sort of fund and move forward. So, I mean, again, that's the loose structure. It could change a lot between those pieces of the puzzle, but that's kind of roughly how things would align. Yeah, no, that makes sense. When would you say, when would you recommend that someone is right for VC invest? Not what you look for, but when do you know that VC investment is the right path for someone to go down versus bootstrapping or some of like the other methods? I mean, I think, it, I think in many ways it comes down to that's the decision for the founder, right? Like they, they, I think they have to make that call about whether they want VC investment and whether that's the right thing for their business and whether they want to kind of live that life because it's a very different life than bootstrapping. And, and there's actually a really good article. I can't remember exactly what the name of it was, but I can send it to you uh, if it's relevant to include in the show notes. But it was basically about, I think it was called something about like venture capitalists and the marginal dollar problem. And it basically was this whole uh, look at VC funding, specifically in kind of the tech startup world and how it actually ends up poisoning and destroying a lot of companies that otherwise may have survived because the pressure to grow so rapidly essentially causes them to reinvest in activities that are actually destroying value instead of creating value. And so the companies eventually kind of blow up. Um, but you know, I would say for us, like we, we, if we see a founder who's happy and sort of thriving in the current state of their business and they want to have sort of more of a lifestyle business or whatever, I'm not, I'm not in the business of trying to convince those people to let me invest in their companies. I'm just going to let them go do their thing. And you know, if that's what they want to do, 
more power to them. I'm like everyone that I basically even speak to is already sort of made the determination for themselves that whether through lack of ability or skill, they don't know how to take the next step in their business and they want to, or they've identified, hey, here are the areas that I'm weak. You kind of fill these gaps, whether it's with capital or intellectual capital that you're kind of bringing to the table that will help them scale up. Um, and, and so they're looking for actively for somebody to kind of fill the specific holes that they see in their business. And so I would say you have to, if you're a founder, you have to get really clear with yourself about what do you want? Uh, you know, what kind of lifestyle do you want? What's your vision for the business? And, and are you capable of taking it there? Because if you, you know, I mean, I think you can kind of land on any of the outcomes there. If you really are honest with yourself about that, like if you really want to grow and you really don't think you need VC, but then if you look at your kind of strengths and weaknesses and realize there's no way you're ever actually going to hit your goals without bringing on investment capital or people with the right expertise, then that's a serious problem. You know, the flip side is like, if you really want to have kind of a lifestyle business and not, you know, work super hard and like really push this company to the, to the limit. And, and yet you sort of have these visions of building this massive business. Like you have to reconcile those two things at some level because, you know, if you want to be the CEO of a hundred million dollar company, that's not like a chill lifestyle business. That's like a very high stress job. And so, um, you know, the, and, and that might require either taking on VC capital or sort of replacing yourself as the CEO. And so there's a whole spectrum there, but I think it really comes down to the founders. If you're a founder and you're thinking about it, you need to read up about it, do some homework, look at examples of companies that have done sort of both routes and figure out which route is the right route for you. Gotcha. Um, and typically crowdfunding campaigns, I think if just say we're, we've raised capital for a barbecue sauce and they raised one to $200,000. When is the right, I mean, should going straight to VC after a successful crowdfund like that, is that too early or too low of a valuation at that point? And would you want a bit more, um, market validation? Or would you say that the validation based on a campaign that does that well leaves with a few thousand customers? Is that enough? I mean... It it depends on who, what sort of specific investor you're talking to. I'd say for the food world specifically, you know, there's, let's say, let's, let's zoom out and think about the technology world. There's sort of there's two or three places that VCs invest typically, right? You've got kind of seed stage, which is super early stage and essentially an idea, right? Maybe a little bit of traction validation. You've got sort of series A, which is a little bit, you know, kind of more traction. They've got customers, they've got revenue, they're growing. You've got series B, which is an even more advanced company and then sort of series C down the line, right? The more you move along that pipeline, the more advanced you are. In the tech world, there's a you know, there's probably maybe a little bit fewer people in kind of the seed stage that's, you know, that's gap filled by a lot of angel investors and stuff like that. But it's relatively straightforward to raise seed capital and technology. I would say in food, it's much harder and the investors all skew way more towards like the series B, series C, especially in the traditional VC sense in terms of you're talking about like actually how much revenue your company has and that kind of stuff. Like in the food world, most of the investment pool is there's very few people that invest in the really early stages honestly we're one of the few companies that does do it and i know a lot of the other players that that are kind of in that world um but you know i would say the more traction you can get the better that doesn't mean like you know if you have if you have $300,000 in sales and you did a successful kickstarter campaign and all that stuff like there there are investors out there that would be a good fit for that but the investor pool of people who invest there versus let's say like a cpg company that has two or $3 million a year in revenue is, is much smaller. And, and really the magic number 
for sort of a CPG company is like 10 million in revenue, which I know is beyond, well beyond kind of the Kickstarter world. Um, but that's when you start to get in like the, the general mills and the, you know, the Kellogg's of the world and the, Got it. like all the private equity buyers, that's when they start to get really interested in, in CPG companies. And so, but the problem is because in, uh, returns are so low kind of across the board right now, um, a lot of those private equity firms are starting to reach lower and earlier in invest in earlier stage companies. And so that creates an opportunity. Um, and so there are more people investing in that early stage space, but I'd say in food specifically, it's, it's somewhat challenging to find a lot of people that invest very early stage. That makes sense. And you're in the industry, so you see the spectrum, but for someone who, um, has just, you know, they're doing quarter million in revenue or a million and they're looking for that next level. How do you go to the right fit investment? Like, is it just a matter of just talking to people and having conversations and eventually realizing who invests in what kind of businesses? Or is there a way to filter through the investment pool to find the right person? In food specifically, it's it's a hundred percent, maybe not a hundred percent, but I would say like vast majority of it is all sort of word of mouth driven, right? Okay. There's an, at least from what I've seen, it's, it's harder. There's not like an angel list of, of food, early stage food investments or early stage food investors. There's a few, there's a handful of people that, um, you know, that are kind of out and about that do that. And like, and, and I can recommend some people if, if listeners want to reach out to me. Um, but you know, it's not like a massive ecosystem universe. Really the best thing to do is if you're in that world, you know, talk to your, hopefully you have some sort of connections in the CPG space, whether it's an advisor or, or, you know, maybe a mentor or something like that, or someone in that world that used to work at one of the big food companies. Those are the kind of people to talk to and figure out, okay, hey, what's the ecosystem look like? Do you know anybody that invests in sort of these early stage CPG businesses? And trying to find kind of the right person for that, that, particular what product that you're whatever you know whatever you're trying to launch yeah i think um what you've given the listeners right now is just an idea of the different levels of investment the different kinds of investors at least even though they may have a hundred different people to talk to knowing which questions to ask because it's not a matter of hey do you know any vcs in the food space it's what kind of vc do you need what kind of business do you have and just making it really relevant so that it does increase your chances of getting on the phone with the, the right person. And, and, and I would say like, even in food in particular, a lot of times for early stage food companies, like let's say you have a, uh, like a barbecue sauce, we'll just keep using that example, a barbecue sauce that's doing like less than a million dollars in revenue. Sometimes the most interesting investors for a product like that is to find somebody who was a former sort of high up at one of the packaged food companies, like one of the big ones, like Kraft or something like that, or, you know, find one that was in sort of the niche that you're in and try to find sort of a retired executive in that particular food niche. And, you know, on LinkedIn or through your own network or referrals or whatever, a lot of times those people have disposable capital, they're looking for investment opportunities, and they know how to add really specific value to that particular niche. So let's say if you're in like nut butters or whatever, maybe you go find somebody that, is really, really knowledgeable about that world or like a high up executive at uh, like Justin's or whatever that left and like has a couple million dollars and they're looking to spend like a couple hundred grand to invest in a particular uh, vertical. Or if you're doing um, like kombucha, you know, same thing, right? Try to find like that. That is one niche that's that's kind of untapped. It's not necessarily easy to discover those people, but they're really value added investors and advisors. And they also 
if you find kind of the right type of people, they typically have some disposable income that they're willing to invest as kind of an angel uh, or early stage investor in some sort of CPG company. Yeah, that's a great tip. I'm going to leave my, well, no, I have two last questions, but the first one is if you were to give one piece of advice to um, someone who is just embarking on this journey of what not to do, uh, what would that one piece of advice be? Interesting. I would say, I mean, to me, the most important thing is your reputation and and sort of who you are, like, like what people think about you, right? In, in the sense of don't, sacrifice your integrity for short-term gains, right? Don't, don't take kind of shortcuts to get ahead. I would say what you want to do is be a person of integrity, have a good reputation, because at the end of the day, that's, that's one of the most important factors. You can get money really easily, but it's really hard to build back up your reputation if you have a reputation for being a bad person. So don't, you know, don't cheat, don't exploit people, all those kind of pieces of the puzzle. I would say to me, that's one of the biggest things. I mean, when we're looking to invest in a company, the person's integrity and kind of who they are is a huge component for us. And that's why, um, you know, if you've been a long-term listener to the show, you're going to understand the importance of of, um, really taking care of your backers and staying in communication with people throughout the Kickstarter process because everything you do, uh, as soon as you press launch, is public to everyone. So just be very aware of that in terms of protecting your future too. But um, Matt, you mentioned you had a guide on how to improve your decision-making. Where can people find that? Yeah, so I've got a free guide. It's called Four Steps to Making Better Decisions. Talks a little bit more about decision journals and gives some examples of them as well as goes into a bunch of books that uh, and sort of strategies that are great for kind of really going down and barking the path of making better decisions. You can get it for free uh, at successpodcast.com slash better. So successpodcast.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. Okay. And that will be in the show notes as well. But, um, and can people access the podcast by going to successpodcast.com? Yeah, exactly. So the show's available there. It's on iTunes. It's called The Science of Success. Um, I give my email away at the end of every single episode. So if you do want to reach out to me, if you're in the food world, you have questions or whatever, I read and respond to every single listener that emails me. So uh, I'm happy to kind of be a resource and, and help guide people. Amazing. Well, this has been awesome. I'm glad uh, we got that cookie in Toronto a few That's months right. back because I was like, we need to get you on the show. Um, it's just really cool to see like the back end of, from an investor standpoint, like what do you look at that other companies need to be aware of early stage? So this has been like really, really helpful. Cool. Well, yeah, hopefully I provided some value to your listenership and, uh, and thank you very much for having me on here. It's been an honor. All right. Well, that wraps up episode 125 with Matt Bodner. Uh, great flashback. Again, we're doing our top 10 and dropping the new podcast on May 15th, 2019. So to keep up to date with that and to just keep up to date with like the resources and we're putting out there, head over to kirsten.com. Again, that's K-H-I-E-R-S-T-Y-N.com. We'll see you in the next episode. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launchpad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and 
scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.